join me in Acts chapter 1. Amen. Very tricky place in Acts because Pentecost hasn't happened yet. And um, well, we'll see how we do <laughs> with a very uh, somewhat awkward feeling time. To start, I wanted to talk about one of one of the most popular sayings that goes around the church. I don't know if you believe this here or not, but this is one of the most popular sayings that people hang on to. When someone is struggling, they'll quote this from Scripture, from 1 Corinthians. They'll say, hey, brother, God will never give you more than you can handle. Here's a question, true or false? False. It is false. One man said, our greatest problems are not what we don't know, it's what we think we know for sure, but it just ain't so. And this just ain't so. Um, in fact, if you'd look at 1 Corinthians 10, I th believe I have it on the slide. I wanted to look at you with it because you're saying the, the verse actually says that. So how can you say that's not true? Well, let's read the context of it. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now this is Old Testament Israel in the wilderness. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them, to the ancient Israelites in the wilderness, as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Ooh, that's good. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation, here it is, has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. There it is. He's saying... You don't have to give in to temptation. You don't have to fall to temptation. It's not about God will never let you be in a circumstance that you can't handle. It's saying when it comes to temptation. So if you go on, when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And here's the conclusion. Therefore, my friend, dear friends, flee from idolatry. You don't have to worship idols. God will provide a way out. No temptation will overtake you except what's common to man. God will not leave you without a way out. Okay, so I just wanted to clarify why I said that to say God will never give you more than you can handle is actually not true. So anyone here in life find yourself in circumstances that are way more than you can handle? Did you know that's by God? So, um, if you woke up this morning as a follower of Jesus, if you're going to serve him today, you say, I'm, today I'm going to serve Jesus, you're already way over your head beyond what you can handle. 
And if you come to church, you're way, 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 way beyond what you can handle. If you say, I want to obey the Great Commission, you're infinitely beyond what you can handle. The church by nature is a body that can only be operating and successful and functioning by God's power, not ours. The church is built on the very truth that we cannot handle the mission that Jesus has given to us. In fact, if you look at back to verse 4 of Acts chapter 1, on one occasion while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave, we can take that down from 1 Corinthians now. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then he says in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Point being this, Jesus says, stay put and stay quiet until the Holy Spirit comes and launches you and enables you to carry out the mission that I have for you, to be my witnesses. Starting at home and then going all the way out to the ends of the earth, even all the way to Ravenna, Ohio. But can you imagine being a disciple saying, we can't do that? And Jesus says, bingo, lesson number one. You've successfully got. You can't do that. And church, Maplewood, you say, but now we pick up this torch, we, we grab this baton, and we are going to carry out the Great Commission, starting, with, really? okay. starting where we are and going out to the end of the earth. We can't do that. And Jesus says, we're going to go. We're ready to go to lesson two. So let's get lesson one. It'll be coming on. Nor can I put the right batteries in the microphone, apparently. <laughs> I've long ago given up, though, the thought that I could figure the church out by any wisdom or power of my own. It's way out of my league. And, um, in fact, I remember Howard Hendricks once uh, was a teacher, a seminary professor, spoke when I was in Bible school, and he stood up, he said, the Christian life is not difficult. And he said, it's impossible. <laughs> it is. So Jesus says, wait. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes. Until then, you are in way over your heads and completely unable to handle, completely unable to do and be who I call you to be. But here's the good news about the book of Acts. The book of Acts is not about what the disciples did because they obeyed. It's not about what they did because they figured it out. It's about what God did through them. But we're going to see how they waited for the Holy Spirit to come and what happened in these few days while they're waiting. The good news is God gives us what we need. But we need to be waiting on him and walking in the power that God gives us. Not thinking we have church figured out. Not thinking the church is what we want it to be. It needs to be the movement of God. But here we see 
First of all, here's what we need. We need Jesus, our great high priest, verses 1 through 9, if you look at your outline. We need our great high priest. And Jesus goes up to heaven. His ascension happens here in Acts chapter 1. Starting in verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So Jesus goes into heaven, back to the right hand of the Father. I mean, I'm so tempted to stop and camp here for a while, but we're trying not to spend our entire year in Acts chapter 1, as, as we both explained. We've got to sort of move through the entire book, but there's so much here. We talked about last week how important it is if Jesus didn't go back and sit down at the right hand of the Father nothing else counts but look at look at the passages I have on your outline and I think you'll get the idea that he becomes our great high priest who intercedes for us in heaven and this is one of the secrets of how we have the power the wisdom the insight the ability to be God's people the church and to go forward in mission and in life Romans 8.34, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. These verses are awesome. Look at the next one, 1 John 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Whoa. <laughs> that's, a big, that's a big mission right there, right? But if anyone does sin, we just might sin sometime. Anybody? We have an advocate with the Father, an advocate, a defense attorney. It's the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit in John. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He represents us to the Father, forgiven. Father, forgiven. He's forgiven. No, you cannot judge Eric because he's forgiven. Father, it would be wrong to judge Eric, remember. He's forgiven. I satisfied your justice against sin on the cross. Forgiven. Anybody glad that that's what Jesus is saying to the Father on your behalf? We sometimes take that he's pleading. Oh, please, please forgive Eric. He just doesn't know what he's doing. That's not Jesus being our advocate. He's saying, I died for that sin. It's covered. Justice is served. He's a child of God. That's how Jesus pleads for us. He declares the truth about us, the truth that we need to believe about ourselves. Uh, let's look at the, verse, the next verse down on, on your outline. It, it only gets better, <laughs> if it can get any better. Let's look at the Hebrews 7.25. This is one of my favorite places in... in Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He's saying, forgiven, 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 justice satisfied, mercy applied, forgiven, forever. You Covered by the blood, covered by the resurrection protected by the risen king who's interceding for us. 
God's word tells us that Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father and intercedes, pleads for us, states our case, is our defense attorney. Literally, that's the word, what the word means. How awesome that Jesus prays for us when we don't pray for ourselves. How often Jesus stands on our behalf. He's praying that our faith will not cease, that we can come out victoriously. Mario Murillo, an evangelist, writes these words, and I, it just this is so powerful. The very idea of overhearing Christ talk to the Father about you should send an eternal quiver through your soul. What would we hear him pray? Hmm. He started praying for you the moment you got saved. The world can't enjoy the benefit of Jesus' prayers. In John 17, 9 we read, Jesus says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but those whom you've given me, for they are yours, and for those who believe through them. He starts praying for you when you become his. He does. He will not stop praying for you. We just read that. Therefore, he's able to save to the, I love that, save to the uttermost, forever and completely, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. At this moment, he's praying for you. He's prayed in advance of your greatest hour of need, your greatest hour of testing. Peter, he said, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen the brethren. Jesus prays for you. Do you remember, we're going to get to Acts chapter 7 some year. Stephen was being stoned. And he was praying and he saw Jesus at the right hand of God standing. Now, what do we know about Jesus when he went back to the right hand of the Father? He sat. But when Stephen, when in his darkest hour of need, he prayed and he saw Jesus, Jesus had said, I see. I am with you. I mean, we not, only, we not only see the facts in the Bible, we see an example in the book of Acts. You, are, you, are, you belong to him. Marilla goes on to write, Consider the mama grizzly as she snuggles her cub. She's the essence of love. But now you try to come between her and her cub. The loving mom instantly becomes the most terrifying creature on earth. She will stop at nothing to protect her cub. The tender moment and the terrifying one are both expressions of the same love. And that instinct comes from God. The same Jesus who comforts you with unmatched tenderness turns his wrath on the evil that threatens you. He will not let anything come between you and him. I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, we will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Robert Murray Machane, preacher from the 1800s, who wrote the greatest Bible reading plan that we still use today that came from him a long, long time ago, made the following statement. One of, the, one of my favorite quotes, it says, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room... I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. 
He is praying for me. And yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for you. So first of all, we need Jesus, our great high priest. Because it's impossible to live for Christ. It's impossible to please God. It's impossible. The church is impossible. Ever felt that way? If not, you're not involved. <laughs> and to be motivated by reality, now we need to pray. Jesus prays for us. That motivates us to come together. And it says in verse 12, the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew. What a crowd. Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James, minus Judas Iscariot, of course. There's 11 disciples there. They all joined together constantly in prayer. There it is. Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. We'll go back to that in a minute. The women were, the, were like the trustee board. Of Jesus. If you look at Luke chapter 8, the first three verses, there was a, a group of women who supported and backed up Jesus' ministry. It's fascinating. I, I've been in churches where the trustees were all men. I said, that's a problem. Jesus had... <laughs> Jesus operated a little bit differently there. But nevertheless, they went back to Jerusalem and prayed. They didn't realize all these truths about Jesus, the great high priest at the time. They didn't realize that when they watched him go, what that meant for them, how awesome it was that he was going to plead for them, that he was going to essentially make sure that the cross continued to apply, apply, apply forgiveness, grace, and mercy forever. But they did know they needed one thing, to pray. They were told to wait. That was their one assignment. And as they waited... For the Holy Spirit to give them power, they said, guys, you ever been in Guys, we need to pray. I could give a, probably a list of comical times when someone got gathered all around and said, guys, we need to pray. And they needed to pray indeed. And they did. Remember the verse Jesus says, I am the vine you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You know what the Greek word nothing means? Profound. Nothing. <laughs> Good job. You must have studied Greek. It means nothing. Nothing. Not at all. Nothing. Nada. Nothing. Well, they prayed. To, first of all, we need to pray together with one mind. Notice how it says in verse 14, they join together constantly in prayer. Join together has the idea, here's how it says in the New American Standard, with one mind, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. They were focused together. They were thinking about the same things and willing the same things. Jesus says, wait here, I will send power, and you're going to conquer the world. They said, that would be awfully hard to get off your mind. And they saw Jesus go up into heaven. And for some inexplicable reason, the angel said, why are you up here looking into heaven? I, I don't even know why the angel said that. It's like, duh, why am I looking up into heaven? Jesus just went up into heaven. Have you, has it occurred to you I haven't seen that every day? Never. <laughs> am I right? <laughs> but nevertheless, I'm not going to make fun of an angel. But 
So, so they're focused on this. This is big stuff. And they're of one mind. One accord, it says they were. Um, it, it says in chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 1, when they heard this, they raised their voice. No, it's not one. It's uh, verse... Um, it's when they prayed after they were being persecuted. They, they raised their voices to God with one mind. Okay, so... And secondly, we do it with our whole heart. They joined together constantly. They were continually devoting themselves, it says, to prayer in the New American Standard. Devoting themselves to prayer in one accord. Devoting has the idea that they were doing it constantly. That they were, it was not something that they did occasionally. It wasn't sporadic. It wasn't based on circumstances. It was recurring, habitual. Treat prayer the way you treat eating and sleeping and doing your job. Don't be hit and miss, in other words. Jesus said, give us today our daily bread. What does that tell you? Pray daily, at the least, right? Don't quit when it's a struggle. Be faithful and persistent. So they prayed with one mind, and they prayed with their whole hearts, not giving up when it was a struggle, and they prayed regularly. It was a part of their day. And it wasn't something they did only if they wanted to or only if they were in terrible need. It was just what they did. And they did it together with one mind. They didn't have their own agendas. They were focused on God's agenda. We are going to be focusing during this year of increasing our prayer lives as a church being able to pray together more, focused on becoming who God wants us to be, the church God wants us to be. We have many, many good qualities. We want to pray that we continue to grow in those qualities, that we become the people that Jesus calls us to be. But we need something else, and this is a little redundant. We need each other. The apostles returned to Jerusalem. They all went together. They arrived after they saw Jesus go up into heaven. They're probably a little shaken, a little excited, a little baffled. They go upstairs to the room where they were staying, and the 11 apostles, along with the women who were with Jesus, by the way, these women who were Jesus' trustees, as I say, I don't know that they would have considered that, but they were the supporters. They also were with Jesus at the cross. They also, some of them were at the tomb. This is that same group of women. Luke, Luke highlights them very significantly. And Mary was there. This is the last mention of Jesus' mother in the Bible. And Jesus' brothers were there. Which is awesome because if you recall, Jesus' brothers were not always believers. They opposed him. We know that at the very least he appeared to his brother James, who became the leader of the Jerusalem church, and we know that Jude later wrote a book of the Bible. Jesus' brothers became believers. Even your brother, even your older brother can be somebody you believe in if he comes back from the grave after all. Right? Incontrovertible evidence. No matter how much you resent his perfection, Jesus never does anything wrong, I know. But he didn't. But that wouldn't have done it. But when he came back from the dead, he rose from the grave, he triumphed. That means it, everything. And he did specifically appear to James, we read. 
in 1 Corinthians 15. We need each other. They are all together. A diverse group with many, I mean, in that group was a, a zealot, a Roman zealot. In that group was a former tax, uh, I mean, I mean a, a Jewish zealot who hated the Romans and a former tax collector named Matthew and a collection of fishermen and all kinds of people that, including a group of women which weren't usually part of religious life in that culture. And they were not only, they not only were part of the group, they were a significant, they had significant standing. And this group stuck together. And I suggest that how important it is that we stick together as well. Join me, or I put it up on the screen, or or join me in Hebrews chapter 10. There's a passage that to me kind of parallels what we read here. Therefore, brothers and sisters, this is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Since we have confidence to enter the holy, most holy place by the blood of Jesus, and by a new and living way open to us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. He says, since Jesus died, rose again, and rose to the right hand of God, and is our high priest. Because of that, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Let's pray, and let's worship together. And that's what we see happening here. Prayer and worship. Because of Jesus going to the right hand of the Father. Because he ascended. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we possess, for he who promised is faithful. Hey, I want to tell you, what, that's our hope, that Jesus died, rose, and ascended. And now he's going to intercede. He will intercede, it says in, in, the, in the verse we read before, he saves always to the uttermost forever and completely because he always lives to intercede for us, to apply his blood, to apply his conquest to us as we mess up. And he pleads to the Father and says, covered, forgiven. And that's our hope. Our hope is not that we can be good. Guess what? We can't. Our hope is not that we can be the most religious people. Guess what? That doesn't do it. Our hope is not what we do at all. It's what Jesus is continually doing for us as he started when he came to earth to begin with to rescue us. He rescues us for all eternity. It's always present tense. And he says, so come together, worship, pray, draw near to God. Hold to the truth. Enter the most holy place. That's worship. Our meetings are very significant. I think what we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we had the, the Lord's Supper and we said that it's actually, we're still actually carrying out the Last Supper because Jesus never finished the last cup of the Last Supper, of the last Passover. And so it is that when we worship together and when we pray together, we are following, we're saying Jesus rose from the grave and ascended into heaven and we are joining him in a great worship service. Heaven and earth are connecting in some way that we can't even fathom. When we meet, it's not a small deal. 
And we need to realize that. And I think the book of Acts is going to help us see that. When these people got together, and especially the Spirit came, it was dynamite. But even before, even in this time that's sort of in between the coming of the Spirit and Jesus leaving, we still see the power that comes from having Jesus at the right hand of God. Okay, but it also affects, it's not only prayer and worship together, but we want, well, what we want to see is that we also are to be plotting and provoking. Plotting and provoking against each other? Well, yes, on each other's behalf. Notice it says, verse 24, let us consider, plot, how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us consider how we may spur one. So there's a picture. Marsha's coming in the back door there now. Sorry, Marsha, I don't want to embarrass you, but it's the perfect, perfect timing. And she looks, she stops and looks, and she's, and she's scheming. Who, who can I spur on to love and good deeds? Right? She says, aha, I see Vicky. I'm going to, and by the way, you know what the word spur means? Spur. Yeah! <laughs> Go horsey. <laughs> it, I mean, it's the same concept. I'm going to, yeah! And say, Vicky, love somebody. Spur her on to greater love and greater... There you go. That's it. So we come in the door of the church. You don't have to come into the door of a church, but that's the picture that Marcia so graciously provided. Thank you. Thank you for cooperating. And... Um, spur one another on to love and to do good how awesome is that plot and provoke plot and provoke plot and provoke that is a powerful picture but then there's another it's encouraging I call this clapping and cheering because it says in verse 25 yeah that's it not abandoning our meeting together as such is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, we come together, we plot and provoke, and we say, who can I say? Good job, Marcia. See, it's a hot seat where Buddy is. <laughs> but encourage me. And, and you know, I, I remember when I was a relatively new Christian and... Um, part of a big, fairly large, crowded church, and there was um, the, one of the leaders of the church once spoke to the group I was a part of, altar counselors, and she said, you know, um, I sit in a different place every week, you might notice, because I want to meet new people. I want to talk to new people. I want to be able to encourage new people. And I remember as a new Christian, I was mad. I don't come to church. Now, what a blowhard idiot I was, okay? I don't go to church to talk to people, to encourage people. I come to worship God. And I felt this rumbling. It was the angels laughing at me, you know, like, what a dope. <laughs> because worship involves drawing near to God. And worship involves spurring one another on toward love and good deeds and encouraging one another. Did you know you're worshiping when you encourage one another? 
when you love on one another, when you pray together, out there, out down there, in the parking lot, nowhere near here. But when we come together, the worship experience involves all those things. Boy, I was full of hot air, wasn't I? No, no funny comebacks. <laughs> I wish I had some hot air to blow out today. We could use it, couldn't we? One person wrote, someone who was unable to make it to church, said, no matter what anyone says, individual personal adoration and praise is good, but nothing compares to the presence and power of Almighty God, the Holy Spirit, when his people are gathered together. Yes, we put our services online so we can watch. And that's wonderful when we need that. But we all know that the, the, you know, the ultimate desire is to be together as a people where we can draw near to God, pray and worship together like they did when they left. Our, we're, we're praying to our great high priest who is interceding for us. We're praying for one another. We're praying for needs. We're receiving words and insights and revelation from him so we can know how to apply the teachings of God's word and live it out and be empowered to do so. We come together and we're here to encourage and spur one another on toward love and good deeds, positive peer pressure, godly peer, and we are here to encourage one another. That's all worship. I want to ask you right now, do you have anything specific in your life that's more than you can handle? What we do at the end of our, our services is we have a time of prayer, and you can pray. When there's something, you don't say, well, I, I know I can handle this because God never gives me... No, that's not true. It is more than you can handle. But he will give you the power to handle it, child of God. Church way more than we can handle. I can barely get my own shoes on the right feet. And we got all these other people and all these other issues. Way more than we can handle. We can pray and say, God, Spirit, we do have the Holy Spirit now, thankfully. We can be through pretending we don't. Circumstances in life, hard circumstances, crisis, people problems, money problems, you name it, illness. Our bodies tend to get weaker as we get older. Problems crop up, but we didn't even know we had something there, and there it is. <laughs> um, more than we can handle. Yeah, it is. I wouldn't tell you, you can handle it. You're tough. No, being tough isn't the answer. We're not that tough. Nobody is. And if they are, they're shutting God out of their solution, which is not a good idea. You don't want to shut God out by saying, I can do this. I live through the depression. I used to hear that. I'd be like, Oh, no. We need to let go of that. Not because it's not admirable. It is. But 
if that's how I handle difficulty, I'm not open to the work of God in my life. I'm too busy being tough. And God doesn't work through tough people. He works through people who are broken and open and say, yeah, I need him. And in the book of Acts, the very act of serving, following Christ, both individually and together, and all the things that come with it, are by God's intention way beyond us so that we will depend on him and him alone. Amen? I encourage you to pray for those things in your life, including the body here during this time as we wrap up our service. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us what we need. It is true. What you've asked us to be and do is way beyond us. But you ask us to do that. You commission us to do that. You order us to do that because you came yourself to our rescue. And now we simply give back and live for the one who died for us and who rose for us and who lives for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for interceding for us, knowing that we needed the help. Thank you for promising the Spirit and sending the Spirit who we desperately need. And we desperately need each other, Lord. We can't really live for you on our own. We need each other. We need each other's strengths. We need each other's weaknesses. We need to encourage one another. We need to strengthen and spur on one another. We need to annoy each other so we can learn forgiveness and patience and forbearance. We, we need the experience that comes from being the body of Christ. Now help us to be honest about our needs, about our inabilities. You started your teaching, Jesus, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And boy, do we feel that today. We don't have what it takes. But in you, you've provided what it takes. We thank you. So help us to call out to you. And as a church, help us to continually, continually yield more and more of our minds and our wills and our actions to the direction and power of your spirit. Amen.